pretty impressive when you talk about the headache um, study. I'd like you to, to kind of cover that because I think that is helpful to think through about the, the types of patients that were kind of, I think you had about 300 and, or no, the initial study was uh, 22, I think, in the study, and then you had 190 study follow-up. So can you kind of tell me about those studies and, and what you gained from them and, and what we can understand from a, from a clinical perspective? Yeah, great question. So, so yeah, when, when Dr. Crawl said he could treat headaches and uh, he had headaches coming back to, there, there's Dr. Dr. Nelson's the neurologist and she was working in this headache clinic and she had these patients. And it's funny listening to them talk about it because he'd give the patients these glasses and say, these are your headache glasses. And then, uh, and then they would go in the neurology clinic and she'd go, headache glasses like like she was very skeptical and so she calls jeff up and say what are you doing to these patients um you know kind of skeptical of what was going on and and we started talking to her and she started to realize like wait there is this connection between your extraocular muscles and your proprioceptive fibers and trigeminal nerve maybe this isn't all you know crazy optometry talk let's let's see what we can do here and so she agreed to give us those refractory patients, patients that, that can't be treated by anything else. And um, so wait, hold on a second, because I want to yeah. step back a little bit, because it yeah. was not just the, the kind of entry level headache patients, because what she was going to do is she's going to treat them with their normal stuff, because that's what she understands as, exactly. a, as a prescribing, you know, medical doctor, right? Exactly right. There's, they have a regimen, yeah. So then she's only going to kick them to, to Dr. Crawl for this study and to you all for this study when they don't respond the way she wants them to respond. Exactly right. Okay. Last line of defense. I don't know what else to do with these patients. It's not going to hurt to put some glasses on them. Let's see what happens. I mean, these, these were the worst. They were literally the worst of the worst patients. There 179 of them. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a conversation with Eric Plumley and Pierre Bertrand, and we talked about heterophorias, we talked about uh, fixation disparities, we talked about contoured prisms, specifically we talked about NeuroLens and how practices have implemented that into their, uh, into their clinical decision-making for patients, specifically for headache patients, patients with other kind of asthenopia symptoms. It was a, a really fun conversation and I learned a lot and I hope you enjoy our conversation. As always, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. I think we're in the best time to practice optometry. Yes, on this podcast, we've discussed the expansion of corporate entities, vertical integration, online retailers, and unproven technology. But I truly believe if we're taking care of our patients and offering the newest and best options for their eye health and vision, these disruptors will only serve as a clear distinguisher between what patients can get from them and what they expect from us. So I was excited to find out that CooperVision recently received approval for its new Biofinity Toric multifocal contact lenses from the US FDA. In our practice, we've had a ton of success for our patients in terms of comfort, vision, and stability with proven optical designs of CooperVision's Biofinity Toric. The Biofinity Toric Multifocal combines that Toric design and its rapid stabilization with the flexibility and customization of the Biofinity Multifocal Lens. This provides our presbyopic astigmatic patients with an excellent option for minimizing their dependence on glasses. 
Check out the show notes and link to Cooper Vision's website for contact lens parameters and more release information. First of all, thank you, Pierre and Alex, for coming on uh, today. I, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. And I think when I think about NeuroLens, as we were talking before the podcast started, um, I'd like to go back a little bit because uh, I think it's interesting as a provider to think about what um, what was the impetus for the initial development of NeuroLens? What was the doctor seeing or what were you all seeing, Eric, as the, the chief um, technology officer? What were you seeing that needed to be addressed that wasn't being fully addressed before you went to the neurology offices and did some of those other studies which we'll talk about? You know, it's really uh, interesting, you know, history study that, that was going on. So, uh, you know, it, it started off with this Dr. Crawl in Mitchell, South Dakota, who invented the technology. And he was seeing patients and treating them with, with contour prism. And he was, his original designs, he was literally bending the lenses in the salt pan to create the contour prism. Hmm. Um, his family, his father and his grandfather, both optometrists had been treating binocular disorders. And so they, this was just common for them. Um, well, lo and behold, there was a doctor, ophthalmologist Vance Thompson, who was doing uh, LASIK procedures. And these LASIK procedures, uh, patients were coming back with dry eye sensation. And they came back with dry eye sensation, perfectly good tear film. And he's trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with them. And he finally sent him off to this Dr. Crawl. And Dr. Crawl would put them in these neural lenses. No refractive power in the lenses at all. They just had the contour prism just treating their eye misalignment. They come back, symptoms are gone, happy as a clam. And he's like, what are you doing to these patients? Is this just, win are you putting windows in front of them to keep the air off them? What's going on? And he explained to him that eye misalignment. Um, and then Vance Thompson knew Andy Corley, former, you know, he, he found it, he was part of Chiron Vision that did LASIK. He was part of uh, Ionics that did the crystal lens. And, uh, and, you know, he met with Vance Thompson and Dr. Crawl. And Dr. Crawl said, these treat headaches too. And voila, we were, we we're like, okay, if these can treat headaches, this is gold, this is a good market. And so that's how we got into the, that's how we started with this company. We said, okay, we, we, we had something started with this dry eye connection and then it turned into, whoa, you can do headaches. And, and the company at that point thought headaches was, was the primary market. Started working with the neurologist, we built the headache center, and then uh, we pivoted back to, to optometry. We realized that's where the, that's where the patients are. Well, I think it's pretty impressive when you talk about the headache um, study. I'd like you to, to kind of cover that because I think that is helpful to think through about the the types of patients that were kind of, I think you had about 300 and, or no, the initial study was uh, 22, I think, in the study, and then you had 190 study follow-up. So can you kind of tell me about those studies and, and what you gained from them and, and what we can understand from a, from a clinical perspective? Yeah, great question. So so yeah, when, when Dr. Crawl said he could treat headaches and uh, he had headaches coming back to, there, there's Dr. Dr. Nelson's the neurologist and she was working in this headache clinic and she had these patients. And it's funny listening to them talk about it because he'd give the patients these glasses and say, these are your headache glasses. And then, uh, and then they would go in the neurology clinic and she'd go, headache glasses? Like, like she was very skeptical. <laughs> And so she calls Jeff up and say, what are you doing to these patients? Um, you know, kind of skeptical of what was going on. And, 
and we started talking to her and she started to realize like, well, wait, there is this connection between your extraocular muscles and your proprioceptive fibers and trigeminal nerve. Maybe this isn't all, you know, crazy optometry talk. Let's, let's see what we can do here. And so she agreed to give us those refractory patients, patients that, that can't be treated by anything else. And um, so wait, hold on a second, because I want to yeah. step back a little bit, because it yeah. was not just the, the kind of entry level headache patients, because what she was going to do is she's going to treat them with their normal stuff, because that's what she understands as, exactly. a, as a prescribing, you know, medical doctor, right? Exactly right. There's, they have a regimen, yeah. So then she's only going to kick them to, to Dr. Crawl for this study and to you all for this study when they don't respond the way she wants them to respond. Exactly right. Okay. Last line of defense. I don't know what else to do with these patients. It's not going to hurt to put some glasses on them. Let's see what happens. I mean, these, these were the worst. They were literally the worst of the worst patients. There 179 of them. Right. And so, you know. And you've already got them on Topamax, which, by the way, is likely to, could, could potentially cause ciliary effusion and some other things. So oh, let's yeah. just try then. Let's try the less invasive thing second, right? Exactly. So I wonder, what's interesting is I wonder if that's flipped her perspective and now she's going to some of these other things first. But, but tell me about the study and then we can talk about yeah. that, other, that other stuff later. Yeah, so, so they ran the study. You know, basically, at this point, the investors are trying to understand does the solution work, right? I mean, so they put in, you know, a million dollars just to say, hey, let's run a study to see if this works. If it works, uh, we'll build this out and we'll build headache centers around the country. That was their thought, thought at the time. And so they ran the study and the neurologists were absolutely floored. Um, they saw, they saw, like I said, 84%, 82% positive response to treatment with 54% saying reduced substantially or basically gone. I mean, that's an absolutely phenomenal result and that they hadn't seen and they were all in. And so we actually, built a bricks and mortar headache center in, uh, in Sioux Falls. We put an optometrist in that office and the neurologist would refer the, uh, would refer the patients to the optometrist to treat these patients. So yeah. And our idea was this should be the first line of defense. I mean, that Topamax can cause all kinds of unwanted yeah, side yeah. effects. Right. And, and why not get them there? Um, so they were all in. The challenge was now getting other neurology centers to also buy it. We found that to be a challenge. So, uh, so what do you think? What, what do you, for for neurologists to wrap their mind around this? Is it because uh, I I get that you know you made we when we were talking talking offline you know you made the comment that neurologists kind of are skeptical. But I think a lot of physicians are skeptical about yeah. about changing their the things that they learned in school, right, or during right. their fellowships or their or their residencies. But um, is there something about this that makes them more skeptical because they never learned learn about it, or what? What do you think? What do you think it is? They, you're asking what I think, so so you know I take it with a grain of salt. Sure. But, you know, it's uh, you know, my impression is that they're so used to the pharmacological approach to things, right? You you run. You run a $50 million study that's a double-blind mass-controlled study and has, has certain endpoints, and that's their gold standard, um, which is great. And then they get indication for use, and there's these huge barriers put up by the pharmaceutical companies for, for somebody like us saying, hey, we just spent a billion dollars to put a drug on the market. Right. You know, you're not going to come in with your – you know, 179 person study that showed efficacy 
and, and start bumping Botox and Topamax off the market, right? And so there's, a, a, there's just kind of a natural reticence to go off of what, what their standard treatment is. And, and so, so what was great, though, was that the Vision Council did their study right when we were getting started. And we saw the patients are showing it up at optometry offices already. We could be the front line of defense, not by working through the neurologists, but by working through eye doctors that can provide relief before they even get there. So then what's the, what is the personality or the practice type or the practice perspective that you all see when, when the doctors are going to say, I'm going to take this, whether it's neurology or optometry, where they're going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, understand how to utilize this and implement it to my practices. There's sort of a certain kind of um, perfect practice that you think these guys are going to get this. What's your thoughts on that? I don't know, Pierre, you want to take this one? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're closing in on 250 locations now, and, and we've really started to understand uh, the DNA. Um, and I can tell you, we work with uh, cold starts, and we also work with, you know, eight, 10 doctor, multi-million dollar practices, and we've seen success in both of them. Uh, so that whole spectrum but to answer your question, you know, the, the DNA of a practice that does really well with Neuralens is one that um, puts the patient first and uh, tends to look for technology. So we tend to uh, cohabitate very well with sclerals, uh, dry eye clinics, um, those that have invested in new technology, um, and, and also those that have done a really good job from a total office perspective in managing that patient and not allowing uh, maybe their insurance uh, to guide the treatment. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. And, and what's interesting to me is that that's what I've arrived at in general is, um, is I was talking a few months back with, um, with John Rampakis and we were having this conversation about total patient care model. And, you know, in my mind, when I think there's, there are people who kind of get into this model of letting, like you said, letting a managed vision care plan dictate what they're going to do mm-hmm. uh, or, or drive the practice. And that's, that is the, and, and then you, then you hear a lot of people complaining about, you know, oh, I'm not getting this reimbursement or that reimbursement. But if you're really taking care of the total patient, you made the comment of, you know, patient uh, docs who've embraced dry eye or scleral lenses or, you know, I actually think about it as, you know, from an optometry perspective, there is the hub in many cases that is a marketing expense, which is a managed vision care plan. Most people cannot, if if they're just doing exams and making their revenue on the value of the service they're providing for a managed vision care plan, the only way that they can run their offices is if, if that's all they're doing is to sell glasses or contact lenses. So that's the only way they can make their practices run. But the practices that are embracing a total patient care model have that as a revenue stream, right? But those managed vision care plans are also, if you're asking the patient the right questions, if you're listening to their answers, then you have these other opportunities where you have dry eye, you have macular degeneration, you have glaucoma, you have scleral lenses, you have neuro lens, you know, all these other things. And so the hub is... I won't call it a loss leader, but I'll call it a loss leader, right? Is the managed right. vision care plan. But it's really a marketing expense to capture those patients who need the, the additional services. But you have to know uh, how to implement those services. And I think there is a little bit of a disconnect in understanding how to, 
implement those different kind of more advanced, non-covered, uh, non-managed vision care services. And it does take a certain type of provider with a certain type of DNA uh, yeah. to do that. And actually, in my, my opinion, um, that's why I'm so passionate about it is that I think the best, and, and, and I'm not asking you to disagree with me or agree with me, but I think the best people that are in the best place are the doctors that are as connected to the practice and their patients as possible. So when you are in a practice that you, that is your practice, I find that people um, understand how to do all those other things as opposed to, you know, I think you could do it in a commercial location. I just think it's much more challenging to do it in a commercial location or under the banner of, uh, again, a large, you know, multidisciplinary or multi-specialty uh, group. Can it be done? Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I think it, it's more challenging to do it that way. You're, you're absolutely right. And that, that's where um, we, we think of the practice from a total office perspective because it, it is truly um, that journey for the patient and having everybody on board, you know, and, and we see it every day. Uh, you know, we, we just introduced NeuroLens to a, a, a new multi-million dollar practice in San Diego last week. And as we were talking through it, you know, their biggest challenge was, well, gosh, you know, our practice is over 80% VSP. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just, you know, we've been trained over time that volume is necessary for us to grow. And, you know, mm. I made the point that every patient... Was it Mick and JT? No. Okay. No. Okay. Although that's a great practice too. It is a great um, practice. I would be surprised <laughs> if they said that. But, yeah. but I, I hear that same thing. It's like they, people, again, one of the challenges is if you, and I want to listen to the rest of the story, but it's like they, you think I, I need more and more volume. But what I've seen, even after COVID, I mean, that's been the model our practice has always been built on is let's pay attention to the patients we have. Let's, let's do a very good job for them. Listen to the, all the symptoms, be able to have a solution when they do present a symptom. And then when you can solve that problem, they yeah. trust you more to solve the other problems. And I also think there's this sort of halo effect that surrounds the rest of the practice. If the doctor's listening well and the doctor's taking care of them from that standpoint, then that extends. I, we never have to explain why, our, why the things we have in our optical are better yeah. because they, the, the halo effect from us providing them excellent care extends to the rest of the practice. So Absolutely. anyway, so, so they, they were kind of caught up in the volume. They were. And, you know, I made a very simple statement. Uh, which was every patient is a private pay patient. And by that, I mean, if there's an unmet need and the doctor can walk them through that unmet need and that they have a solution, not only will that patient be happy to pay for that, especially when there's a lifetime satisfaction guarantee, but they'll be grateful that that doctor offered them something that you can't get online that you can't get in a big box store. This is something different. And, you know, I really believe that, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, we're having record months. The number of doctors that are coming on board are, are twice as frequent as what we had pre-COVID. And I really believe it's because it gave practitioners a little bit of time to step away from the hurricane and to say, what am I doing with my practice? You know, how am I going to compete in the future? And, and I think for many, they said, well, I've got to look at the one piece of my practice that if I grow it, I can control it over time. And that's that cash pay portion. And I think that's part of where we fit in really nicely. 
Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I'm glad to hear that, that that's been your perspective as well, because that's what I've seen is I think people had time to kind of sit and reflect on how they want their practices to look in the future. And, um, and, you know, I think most of them were probably doing a lot of what they wanted to do. They've just sort of had the time to refine what that process would look like. Right. And, uh, and their offerings to their patients. So the things that they can solve for their patients when you, you know, so if you take me back to, um, you know, you, you, you talked about the, um, Oh, the, uh, what did you call it? The confidence in prescribing program. Right. Um, so how many times, so first of all, that, I think takes a lot of the risk or the concern that the doctor might have in bringing this on. So tell me about that. And then also tell me how often that gets used. Absolutely. So we, we believe that, you know, we're not selling a device or selling a lens, we're selling an outcome. And that outcome is, is not the end of the road for us. It's actually the beginning of the relationship. And so we stand behind every pair of neural lenses that our doctor partners prescribe to their patients. And we do it in two ways. The first is we recognize that this is not your generic pair of eyeglasses. And so um, we start with the prescription that's recommended from the device, which as, as Eric described, you know, we're, we're getting close to a billion points of data and we're continuously refining that. Um, but for some, some patients, we may need to tweak that a little bit and so we stand behind it by saying in the first 120 days, you can do two remakes, no problem, no questions asked. Uh, and then the second piece is we've got a lifetime patient satisfaction guarantee, which is unique in the market. Um, we're not saying if they're scratched, you know, we'll, we'll remake them. We're saying if that patient two years from now says, you know, after thinking about it, that was really expensive and I'm not sure I'm, get, I'm still getting the benefit, we'll refund hundred mm-hmm. percent of the purchase. So um, we stand behind you. We want to be the easiest and best partner you've got in your practice. And uh, the second part of your question was, um, how often is that used? Uh, so on the remake side, we're at actually at about half of what you see in terms of remake rates uh, for some of the more personalized lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the return side, with that lifetime patient satisfaction guarantee, uh, we're at less than 4%, which I think is a real nice testament to the technology. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and so that you brought up a couple points. I mean, again, I'm thinking about, okay, I want to bring in my practice and I'm relying on numbers that I've never relied on before. Uh, how do I fix a problem? Like right now, if a patient has an issue with, you know, a, a prescription that we write, um, well, I, I, I know, I mean, clinically, I know how to fix that. So one of the barriers I think maybe to a lot of doctors is how do I fix a problem if there is one? So, okay, I, I get these numbers. Um, and and to, to kind of take another step back, um, when you share ideas with like differences in, uh, in measurements at distance and near, it's not a fixation disparity. It, it's not exactly a heterophoria. So mm-hmm. that's challenging, right? You know, when you're, when you're, I think of like WC Maples, you guys know WC, have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he was, he was one of my guys and he's, um, he was a very interesting um, kind of pediatric binocular vision uh, teacher, professor that I had. And, um, and so I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think, okay, well, what are we, what am I actually measuring? What am I actually prescribing so how, how do I wrap my mind around that? And then how do I fix a problem if it's not working well? 
Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm going to let Eric <laughs> answer this, but you know, um, we were just in a, in a, a room yesterday for, for two hours, um, living one of the things that really drives this company. We, we call it dig for problems. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even though we're getting great results and our patients are really happy, we're always trying to dig for, okay, you know, what can we improve? What can we enhance? And it, the question you brought up is a perfect one. So I'll let, I'll let Eric answer that one. Yeah, Dr. Wolf, you brought up, uh, you know, the doctors that are successful are doctors that can kind of take all these technologies and be able to integrate them. And we recognize that at, at Neuralens. And so we really have a really good training program to get doctors started. But the device itself tries to make that question that you asked as simple as possible. We take 10,000 data points and we boil it down to one number. And if the, you know, rather than trying to take a distance alignment and near alignment and trying to say, okay, what what, the, what they say in school about Sheard's criterion or Percival's yeah. rule or what do, I, what do I do with this, these numbers? We actually are able to use that closed loop system and say, what, what number gives that patient the best opportunity for an outcome? So if the doctor's unsure of what to do, um, we say, hey, here's the neurolens value, write that on the script. And guess what? If, if that's the right number, the patient's going to come back super happy, give you hugs and everything else. If, they're, if that's not right, uh, you, can, you get two more remakes where you can dig deeper. And if the patient can't get help at all, we back you up 100%. And if, you know, so that's one way. If a doctor's super experienced with binocular issues and they want to do their own thing and want to ignore the neural lens value, they're more than comfortable to do that as well. So we really try to just lay the road easy to be, make sure we can give the eye doctor the opportunity to give the best outcome for that patient. Yeah, so I guess, um, I guess and maybe, maybe I, you can't um, answer the question exactly, but what I'm trying to wrap my mind around is like, how would I know whether or not I need to give them maybe another half a prism doctor or a prism doctor? Like, are there ways that I can kind of refine that if they're coming back and it's not as good as I would expect or the patient would expect? Yeah, certainly. So, so we do have a, a we do help the doctor with troubleshooting those cases. But you know, rest assured, I just did analysis last week. You go with the machine, and you have a very good opportunity of of getting success with that patient. But there are cases you you you're exactly right. There's going to be a patient that comes out that maybe is not right. At that point, you need to look at um, what were the measurements. Talk to the patient about their lifestyle. Where are they having problems? Maybe you have a patient like one of those demos that was almost 10 diopters XO at near, and the machine only prescribed two XO with an extra 0.75 at near, and so they're only getting about three, and their problems are primarily at near. In that case, I would say, I'd try to add, add a little bit more uh, prism and, and see, see how that affects the patient so you can learn that way. Um, or, or maybe they're, they're, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe, maybe they're, they're having problems at distance. Maybe you overprescribe prism. They don't have the tolerance um, for, for prism. You run into that occasionally as well. So you might back it off a little bit. But it, it really is, you know, from that point forward, it, it's almost, it takes the time to doctor and understand and look at that individual patient profile because maybe they're not the typical case and you have to do a little more. But the great thing is, is that we, we give you those two remakes and we back the product 100%. So we're behind the doctor uh, to, to the end of relief for the patient. Do we have the option to add any accommodative components? So uh, can you also add, you know, as much power as I would want for up close? 
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. we have we have three lens offerings. So we have our single vision lens, uh, we have an office lens, and we have the standard P PAL uh, progressive lens. So you can order any of those. So yeah, it's a combination, and they all have our our proprietary contour prism in them. So you still get the benefit of the uh, contour prism as well. Yeah, great. And so, um, so when uh, when you have um, docs that have a lot of dry eye in their practice, um, you know, like Scott Schachter and I have been talking about, um, about neurotrophic versus neuropathic pain. This is where I, I, kind of, I have these patients that I'm just kind of scratching my head where they have dry eye. No question they had dry eye. You know, we see a lot of signs, symptoms, but then we get them better and their signs are, are minimal at best, but their symptom scores are just way out of line still. And so um, that's where I'm starting to think about, okay, well, how, how would something like this in my practice impact them? Which it sounds like from Vance Thompson's experience and kind of how this all started with Dr. Crawl and Vance Thompson um, was that was sort of that same revelation. It's like, well, we have these other patients. The other thing that, that I think about when I think about those patients is those are also just generalized pain patients or they have a lot of anxiety. So, you know, um, they're on like gabapentin or some of these other, um, you know, anti-anxiety, anti-epileptic epileptic to try to, you know, alleviate, alleviate some of that. So anyway, it's, it's really interesting to me to, to think through that. And, and so then the, um, so you talked about a patient when we were offline about um, a patient that had dizziness in the car. So how can, how can a contoured prism uh, impact, like when she's looking at distance and driving, how does that impact, um, you know, her ability to feel comfortable in the car driving. Yeah. I mean, we found some of these issues are just related to, to eye alignment. I mean, um, you know, it, it, when you fix a, a, if you think about binocular vision, um, you, you think about it as a patient using two eyes, right. Which gives them the ability to see depth. And so when you have an eye misalignment, you can have a patient with intermittent suppression that, that kind of affects their depth perception and affects their balance and all those things. Uh, furthermore, proprioception is purely your ability to understand where you are in space, right? Yep. And your eyes and extraocular muscles are the number one component for proprioception. So when your extraocular muscles, which have those proprioceptive fibers, are out of balance, everything's out of balance. And so it can result in this dizziness symptom. So that, that's essentially the mechanism for, for that. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So then when, when you think, you know, uh, again, when you think about the history of how we're describing these sorts of visual symptoms, um, you know, talking about moving from asthenopia to convergence insufficiency to digital eye strain, and, and now we call it uh, trigeminal dysphoria, are you saying that trigeminal dysphoria is the same thing as convergence insufficiency or are they different clinical entities with some overlap? It's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very similar. So whereas I think of asthenopia as a symptom set, right? It's right. just eye strain. Correct. Um, convergence insufficiency is a, um, it's a physiological thing that maybe you don't have the near point of convergence you need. Um, fixation disparity is just describing this mismatch of nonius targets when you have fusion. These are all just descriptions of either physiology or symptoms. What trigeminal dysphoria is, is it's a description of, it's a very specific description of a mechanism of action for the symptoms. So when you have, it's saying when you have misalignment and you have the symptoms, you have trigeminal dysphoria. 
So if you have asthenopia combined with fixation disparity or, or severe heteroporia, that's an indication for trigeminal dysphoria. So, so it's more of a clinical term that describes me mechanism of action than just misalignment or symptoms, right? Okay, okay. And, you, can have, you can have misalignment and no symptoms. You can have symptoms and no misalignment. But when you have the combination, that's trigeminal dysphoria. Right. Yeah, so, so let's say, so last kind of question before we wrap it up because I want to be respectful of your time is, you know, you, you bring this into a practice. Um, you use the screening questionnaire that you've got. What sort of indicators on that screening questionnaire? I'm not running probably every patient through this unless they have a significant number of sy symptoms. So first, what's the number of symptoms I'm looking at on, on that questionnaire? Kind of give me an overview of what those symptoms might look like just in general. And, um, and then how do I know like this is going to trigger my pretester to run this, run this test? Like what's, what's common? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and it's really practice dependent. I mean, if you're a cold start practice with low volume, we'll usually encourage them to run every patient mm -hmm. just because sometimes patients fill out a questionnaire and they think, oh yeah, stiff neck, but it's from the car accident. So they'll zero. So those patients, if you see a big misalignment, you're like, wait, you don't have headaches or stiff neck? And they'll say, no, it's from this. And you can say, well, no, we think it's from your eyes. So those cases, you know, we might run 100%. Um, you know, other more busy practices that, that want to make sure that they're just honing in on the most likely to, to uh, follow through with prescription. Um, we find that a plethora of symptoms is the number one indicator of our ability to help them. So, so you know, while we do have headache patients that just have headaches that we help and we do have dizziness patients that, that we can help, we find that if you have headache, dizziness, stiff neck, and tired of computer use, all four of those, that's a great indication mm -hmm. for a patient that we can help. And so depending on the practice profile, you know, it'll, it'll anywhere be between 100% of your patients and, you know, 30 or 40% of your patients will be indicated for, uh, for measurement. So I hope that answers your question. No, no, it does. It does. I was just trying to get a sense of, of you know, what, what's the kind of tilt that most practices are using. But then, then you actually brought up stiff neck again, and it made me wonder, because it was something I was going to ask you before, but um, why stiff ne neck? Why is that all related to the trigeminal nerve? Well, I've heard two... I've heard two, uh, a neurology and an optometrist give me two slightly different answers. Um, but the, the, the optometrist is probably right. Yeah, exactly right. So I'll give you the <laughs> neurologist said, the neurologist says, well, the trigeminal nerve ends at the base of your neck. And so it's a referred pain. Just like if you get a heart attack, your left arm hurts. Well, it's not your left. There's no problem with your left arm. It's your heart referring pain to your left arm. Um, the neurologist talks more about, or the optometrist talk more about the proprioceptive issue is that your eyes when they're out of alignment they see something in the periphery and it sends a signal to your neck to turn right mm -hmm. so so he he was thinking that it's it's actually truly stimulating your muscles in your neck because you, it's hard to look at things if you just turn your eye your natural mm -hmm. reaction is when you see something in the periphery is to move your neck so it, that, that that thought was it has something to do with the proprioception things like that do i know which it is i don't know i'm an engineer <laughs> no, it's interesting. It's interesting. They both probably have some some truth to them, and so um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, um, Pierre, Eric, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you bet. Yeah.